Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us, Episode 33, Apollo Program Flight 2, Apollo 8, Part 2, Go for TLI. Last time, we talked about the audacious origins of the Apollo Program's second flight, Apollo 8. Faced with a slipping schedule and a technical quagmire of a moon lander, NASA set their eyes higher than ever before and dared to shoot for the moon. Today, we'll be talking about the journey of Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders. Before we get to the technical details about boost vehicles and trajectories, I want to take a quick moment to set the backdrop. Apollo 8 would be launching at the end of 1968, a tumultuous and difficult year. It's a little tricky trying to convey what 1968 was like to people who didn't live through it, especially since I didn't live through it myself. I'm writing this in June of 2017 in the United States, and I think that regardless of anyone's opinions on the events of the last 12 months in this country, it's safe to say that it's been tough. Conspiracy theories abound, political strife is boiling over, and despite it being a safer time than any point in history, it still feels like violence is popping up all over. Even with that, however, the people I've talked to about 1968 say it was on a whole other tier. In 1968, the Vietnam War was continuing to expand, threatening to consume untold numbers of young American men and countless Vietnamese civilians. The civil rights movement was in full swing, and along with political protests resulted in a number of large demonstrations and the occasional full-on riot. On April 4th, civil rights leader Martin Luther King was assassinated while standing on his motel balcony, sparking outrage and violence. Just two months later, on June 6th, Robert Kennedy, the brother of the former president, was himself gunned down while campaigning for president. And on top of this, the specter of sudden annihilation in the form of an all-out nuclear war hung over each and every person's head. The day-to-day fear of nuclear attack had faded from the peak of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but tensions remained high. The challenges of today seem almost trivial in comparison. This is the stage that the drama of Apollo 8 would play out on. On the night before the launch, the countdown was already well underway. Thousands of actions needed to be coordinated with precision if there was going to be any chance of getting off the launch pad at all, let alone reaching the moon. Advances in automated checks enabled the team at the Kennedy Space Center to do in hours what would have taken weeks in the days of Project Mercury. As the folks at the Launch Control Center toiled away on making ready the most powerful human-rated vehicle in history, the men who would ride that beast were just a few miles away visiting with a special guest. Only 41 years earlier, an epic journey of another age captured the world's attention in much the same way as the one we're discussing today. On May 20th, 1927, Charles Lindbergh's custom aircraft, the Spirit of St. Louis, trundled off a muddy runway at the start of a 33-hour flight. It would become the first non-stop flight from New York City to Paris, winning Lindbergh a $25,000 prize and everlasting fame. He also helped inspire countless young future aviators, three of which were about to fly to the moon. For Borman, Lovell, and Anders, despite the proximity of their own flight into history, meeting with Lindbergh was the chance to fulfill a boyhood dream. Lindbergh told them stories from his flying career and asked questions about the astronauts' vehicle and navigation techniques. When asked how much fuel they would be carrying, he laughed because the massive Saturn V would burn more fuel in the first few seconds of flight than he did on his entire transatlantic journey. He also recalled meeting Robert Goddard, one of the founders of modern rocketry, 
and speaking to him about where the field of rocketry may go someday. Goddard told Lindbergh that he believed rocketry would one day enable humans to fly in space, and maybe even to the moon. But, he added, it may cost millions of dollars to do so. Oh, Goddard, such an optimist. The conversation from one generation of aviators to another couldn't have gone too late, since the space-bound trio needed to get to bed early if they were going to be rested by their 2.30 a.m. wake-up call. Present at the traditional hearty breakfast were a number of other astronauts, as well as George Lowe, the man who had cooked up this idea. I imagine it took a special type of guts to be responsible for the mission, look these guys in the eyes, and tell them it was all going to work. As the crew approached their vehicle, it must have seemed like something out of legend. Towering 363 feet above the launch pad, their rocket was one of the tallest structures in the state. The structure creaked and groaned as its voluminous tanks were flooded with liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, and rocket-grade kerosene. In the muggy Florida air, ice formed on the skin of the booster, and mist streamed off into the early morning. Only ten years and a few weeks earlier, the space task group had been founded, with 45 people and the goal of someday sending a pilot into orbit. Today, America was headed to the moon. On December 21st, at 7.51 a.m., the mighty Saturn V roared to life. Its five F-1 engines pummeled the ground with a nearly inconceivable 7.5 million pounds of thrust. The Earth itself shook. On board the spacecraft, the three astronauts were pressed into their couches as their journey began. Rookie Anders found the first stage to be surprisingly rough, but to the veterans in the left and middle seats who had ridden Titans, this was an improvement. The problematic second stage performed well, but did fall into a slight pogo oscillation near the end of its burn. Finally, the S-4B carried the CSM into its initial parking orbit. The parking orbit was actually a critical time in the mission. The S-4B had only a limited window where it could be reignited. Before that window closed, the crew had to perform checks on all aspects of their spacecraft to be sure that everything was in order before committing to the moon and performing the translunar injection. A lot of people might assume that the things that would keep astronauts up at night would be thoughts of violent rocket explosions or parachutes failing to open. On the contrary, Frank Borman said his biggest fear was that some inconsequential piece of equipment would fail and mission control would force them to perform an alternative mission in low Earth orbit. Nothing more than a repeat of Apollo 7. Borman needed not worry, however, since Apollo 8 was in perfect condition. About two and a half hours after lifting off, the magic words came from Capcom Mike Collins. All right, Apollo 8, you are go for TLI. Just over 20 minutes later, the computer began to flash 99 on the console. It was asking the mission commander, are you sure about this? Frank Borman pressed pro to proceed, and at 1041 and 37 seconds a.m. Eastern Time, humans truly began their first journey to the moon. The single J-2 engine burned for about five and a half minutes, accelerating the spacecraft by nearly 7,800 meters per second. Now that the launch phase was over, the crew were free to move about the spacecraft. And once this was possible, a new problem emerged, the roominess of the cabin. Mercury had been so small that the astronauts joked, you didn't get in it, you put it on. Gemini was bigger, but not by much, and with a two-man crew, space was still at a premium. With the comparatively enormous Apollo capsule, the crew were actually able to float, glide, and tumble their way around the cabin. 
as first the Apollo 7 and then the Apollo 8 crew discovered, zipping around in zero gravity was fun, but disorienting. The human vestibular system just isn't used to flying and spinning around in zero gravity and seeing others do the same. Space sickness soon followed. NASA never could quite figure out how to cure space sickness, even to this day, but the astronauts learned that until you got used to it, it was important to move slowly, turn your head gently, and generally take it easy. But space sickness wasn't the only thing that could make you sick. Mission commander Frank Borman suddenly found himself getting sick from both ends. Borman later insisted he had a one-day flu and all of the symptoms that came with that. If you thought Apollo 7 was bad, Borman's condition was described as, You know what? Don't worry about the description. Borman hesitated to tell the ground for fear that the lunar orbit phase of the mission would be cancelled, but eventually felt he could hide it no longer. Now, it turns out his fears were well-placed since the flight surgeon actually did advocate for shortening the mission. Luckily for everyone involved, not least of which Lovell and Anders who had to navigate the zero-gravity minefield of a cabin, Borman soon recovered and the mission was able to continue. On the way out, Lovell performed navigation duties, Anders reviewed the photography and science plans for the moon, and Borman kept an eye on everything and everyone. They also performed several live television broadcasts from space. You would think that these would be really incredible, given it being the first moon mission and all, and I guess they are in their own way, but they're also hilariously boring at times. I watched a few, and at one point they spent about 10 minutes trying to guide one of the crew members' camera motions so that the Earth could remain in frame. Nope, down to your left. You're 3 o'clock. We're drifting out of frame again. There you go. No, wait, you moved it again. But for like 10 minutes. But I guess there was so much other stuff going on that we could give them a pass on their ability to put on a show. Borman had originally campaigned to remove the TV cameras due to their weight, complexity, and potential distraction during the mission, but even he eventually came around to the magic of being able to share in this incredible journey with the rest of the world. Apollo 8 had a requirement that they maintain a very low-speed spin for the entire trip in order to distribute heat from the sun evenly across the spacecraft. This, of course, was soon called the barbecue roll. Combine that with the nature of their trajectory, and the crew actually couldn't see the moon at all for the entire trip out there. Lovell spotted it a few times in the navigational sextant, but for the most part, they just had to trust that they were going in the right direction. Mission Control asked Anders what he could see through the windows. Between the trajectory and the fact that the windows were fogging over again, the answer was not much. Anders replied, nothing, it's like being in a submarine. 55 hours and 38 minutes after liftoff, with little fanfare and nothing noticeable on board, the moon became the most powerful gravitational force pulling on Apollo 8. For the first time, humans were in the sphere of influence of a celestial body that was not the Earth. A good way to visualize this is to imagine the Earth as a bowling ball on a bedsheet, creating a large dent. In our analogy, that dent represents the gravitational pull of the Earth the moon would be like a tennis ball circling around the edge of the sheet. The moon is under the influence of the Earth, it's in its dent, but it creates its own dent in the sheet. Apollo 8 had been riding up the slope of the sheet towards the moon and had just crossed over the perimeter of its own little dent and was now riding down the other side. It was still being influenced by the Earth, but they were on the moon's turf now. And since the moon is so much smaller than the Earth, arrival at our little rocky neighbor followed not long after that. 
Two days, 20 hours, and 57 minutes after leaving the humid wetlands of Florida, Apollo 8 was approaching the edge of the moon. The spacecraft would soon pass behind the moon and perform the all-important lunar orbit insertion burn. The SPS would burn for several minutes, slowing down the vehicle enough to enter into a low orbit around the moon. This would all be done while completely out of communication with the Earth, since orbital mechanics dictated that the burn happened on the far side of the moon. Shortly before LOS, or loss of signal, Mike Collins informed the crew that all systems were go, and he wished them a safe journey. Anders replied, thanks a lot, troops, and Lovell said, we'll see you on the other side. And with that, the three men slipped behind the moon. For 35 long minutes, mission control had nothing to do, and no one on Earth could say how the mission was going. The flight dynamics folks had calculated what time communication should return if the burn was successful and what time if it was not. I imagine there was not much discussion about the very real possibility of a third outcome that rather than a spacecraft, a cloud of debris would emerge on the other side. But all of the preparation and all the years of effort had not been in vain. Apollo 8 soon came whizzing around again to the front side of the moon. LOI completed successfully. They were in orbit around the moon. The plan was to orbit the moon 10 times, which at about 2 hours in orbit works out to about 20 hours. 20 hours sounds like a long time to get stuff done, but it's really not. Potential landing sites had to be surveyed and photographed, navigational sightings had to be performed to help determine their precise orbit, and systems had to be continually monitored to ensure that the trans-Earth injection burn would go smoothly in 20 hours' time. There was no time for staring out the window and really absorbing the view. And what an incredible view it must have been. Apollo 8 was cruising around the moon from a distance of only about 70 miles, and with no atmosphere to worry about, the view was crystal clear. The astronauts compared the ancient surface to a dark beach or a plaster of Paris. With only a few precious hours available, and with so much to answer, the crew workload during this time was high. The crew was so busy that it isn't surprising that it took until the fourth orbit for one of the most magical moments in all of human spaceflight to happen. Bill Anders suddenly called out, Oh my god, look at that picture over there! Outside the window was something that any flight dynamics specialist could have predicted, but that no one expected. Flanked by the dead gray moon on one side and the inconceivable black void on the other, the Earth, an oasis of color and life was rising from behind the moon. Earthrise. The flight plan went out the window, and the crew, Borman included, scrambled for cameras. Several photos were taken, but one particular one taken by Bill Anders will forever leave its mark on history. Armed with a Hasselblad camera and 70mm color film, Anders for the first time captured the fragility of our home planet. The photograph would go on to be reproduced countless times, and played a significant part in sparking the environmentalist movement. The crew had come to study the moon, but in doing so, had helped humanity discover the Earth. And the magic wasn't over. On the ninth of ten revolutions around the moon, the crew started the second of two television broadcasts from lunar orbit. Before the mission had begun, someone from NASA Public Affairs had approached Borman and reminded him that more people would be watching his broadcast than anything else in human history he should say something appropriate. Late on Christmas Eve, the broadcast drew to a close, and the crew did just that. From a quarter million miles away, 
at a distance where they could extend an arm and cover the entire earth and everyone they knew and loved with a thumb. The crew began to read from the book of Genesis. I'm not a religious man, but the poetry of that moment is nearly overwhelming. If you've never heard it, I can't recommend it enough. In fact, I even included it on the podcast back in December as Supplemental 3, so go give it a listen. Borman concluded the reading and said, And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless you all, all of you on the good earth. Arguably the most tense moment of the entire mission came as Apollo 8 slipped behind the moon for the last time. Mission director Chris Kraft said it was the most apprehensive moment for him of the entire program. It was at that time that the crew would have to fire their service module engine again and perform the trans-Earth injection to begin the journey home. Just like the lunar orbit insertion burn, orbital mechanics dictated that this burn be performed on the far side of the moon, out of contact with the Earth. If the burn was unsuccessful, the crew would emerge on the other side several minutes later than expected. If they were unable to remedy the situation, they would remain in orbit for decades to come. Early on Christmas morning, Mission Control got the best present they could ask for as Apollo 8 established communications with Houston right on time. Command Module Pilot Jim Lovell quipped, Please be informed, there is a Santa Claus. And despite still being three days from home, that was largely that. There were no more major burns to prepare for and no more major activities to perform other than a few more TV broadcasts. The crew settled in for the long ride home. Shortly before dipping into the upper fringes of the atmosphere, they jettisoned the service module and oriented the command module into the proper attitude for entry. They would be re-entering at a far greater speed than any previous crew, having essentially fallen all the way back from the moon. In order to lessen the loads in the vehicle and the crew, they would actually use the slight lift generated by the spacecraft to their advantage and skip back up into the upper atmosphere on a sort of space roller coaster. This gave the heat shield a chance to cool down and spread the entry forces out over a longer period of time. 147 hours after they left, just over six days, the crew gently splashed down in the Pacific Ocean in the pre-dawn darkness. The spacecraft actually landed pointy end down, leaving the returning lunar heroes dangling from their straps until the airbags could inflate and flip the vehicle around again. A few minutes later, the sun rose, recovery forces arrived, and Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and Bill Anders were back home. The importance of Apollo 8 cannot be overstated. In a lot of ways, I think it was a more important flight than the eventual landings. It was the first time humanity left the cradle and visited another world. The first time the tug of another celestial body outweighed that of the Earth. And it gave everyone on the planet a new cosmic perspective of their home, which suddenly seemed small, frail and in need of protection. If you'll pardon me a brief philosophical moment, I think it's worth highlighting that this kind of journey is something we've always been capable of. When we're able to wrench our attention from the day-to-day grind and the petty bickering, this species is capable of incredible things. Or, as Jim Lovell put it, it wasn't a miracle. We just decided to go. Apollo 8 also had a more immediate impact. Remember how rough 1968 was? Apollo 8 wound up being the perfect conclusion to a difficult year, a shining example of what science, engineering, and a sense of purpose could accomplish. 
Among the many letters and postcards the astronauts would receive after the flight, one simply said, You saved 1968. Next time, we'll take a step back down the alphabet to the long-awaited D-type mission and fly the lunar module in low Earth orbit. Jim McDivitt, David Scott, and Rusty Schweikart would put the full Apollo stack through its paces and introduce Gumdrop and Spider to the world. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. <laughs>